KMTT Kimitzion Tetzetorah. We'll be hosting Harav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. This will be our last year on the Machshav of the Achronim. We've already looked at the thought of the Teferis Yisrael and Rav Tzadok, the Nitziv and the Meshachachma and Rav Hutner. And the last figure we're going to look at is Rosham Shunafel Hirsch. Rosham Shunafel Hirsch is in some ways uh, more well-known than some of the others in terms of his Machshava. But I'd like to explore a few themes that might not be as classically uh, known in his thought. Rav Hirsch was born in 1808 and passed away in 1888. He was a student of Yaakov Etlinger, the author of the Archlaner and Chacham Bernays. And he was a Rav in several kehilot in Germany, most famously from 851 till the end of his life, the Rav in Frankfurt. Refersh is well known as being a proponent of secular knowledge, which he called Torim Derech Eretz, uh, despite the claims of later revisionists that this was a Horat Sha'aj, the concession to the time. It's fairly clear in Refersh's writings that this is, he views as a, an inherent value. Refersh, of course, also famously was in favor of uh, secession. When the Orthodox community gained the political ability to secede from the broader Jewish community, so there was a debate between Rav Hirsch and Rav Bamberger whether to secede or not. And here, uh, some of our normal stereotypes get a little bit confused, which shows that life is more complex. We would normally think that those open to secular knowledge would also be the ones who are proponents of uh, maintaining Jewish unity. Well, here we have the exact opposite. Rav Bamberger, who was not a proponent of secular knowledge, was in, not in favor of secession. He wanted to maintain unity. And Refersh, the proponent of secular knowledge, was in favor of secession. And there's a very I- interesting exchange of letters between the two <coughs> that appears in Refersh's collected writings. I should point out, Refersh was interested in secular knowledge, but not so much in an academic approach to Judaism. There's an interesting difference here between Refersh and Rav Hildesheimer, right? two rabbinic pillars of the community in Germany, where Rav Hildesheimer's conception of secular knowledge also applied to using academic tools to understand Chumash and Gemara, where f- for Rav Hirsch, this was not the case. It was more reading Schiller and German literature. Rav Hirsch's works are manifold. Of course, most famously is his commentary on the Torah, his Igeret in the 19 Letters, which is a basic uh, outline of what Orthodox Judaism believes. He has a work called Chorev, explaining the mitzvot. And Rav Hirsch, in his commentary on the Torah, is very involved in the endeavor of Tameh HaMitzvot. I often think if one wants to study reasons for the commandments, the three basic works to look at are the Rambam's Mur and Buchem in the third Chelek, uh, the Sefer HaChinuch, of course, and Refersh's commentary on the Torah. Not only does he give reasons for mitzvot, but he gives reasons for details of mitzvot, where Rambam famously in Mur and Buchem takes the position that the general idea of a mitzvah has a reason, but some of the details might be arbitrary, meaning something had to be chosen, but what was chosen didn't really matter. Refer seems to be against this point. I don't think he ever takes on the Rambam by name, but throughout the commentary, every detail of the mitzvah is also given a symbolic interpretation. There's a reason why it's these animals and not those animals. A reason why it's this number and not the other number. Refer in the commentary on the Torah also develops the idea that two three-letter roots that share a commonality of two letters also might bear a certain, some kind of relationship. This is a kind of a maverick position of Refersh about terminology. But I would like to discuss issues of Rav Hirsch that are not the classic issues. We're not going to discuss Rav Hirsch's Tamiya Mitzvot, or his understanding of the Hebrew language, or his approach to secular studies. And I've been teaching Sefer Vayikra this year. I think Rav Hirsch has certain themes running through Sefer Vayikra 
that offer a window into an important aspect of Rav Hirsch's thought. However, before we get to Sefer Vayikra, I'd like to refer to an essay that Rav Hirsch has in his collected essays on Sefer Yeshayel. And in that essay, Rav Hirsch offers his view on idolatry. And Rav Hirsch says that idolatry and paganism has to do with a worship of force or a desire to use the cosmic forces to gain power and control. Rav Hirsch explicitly says that desire ends up being less an intellectual problem than an ethical problem. Right? If one asks what's bad or what's wrong about Avodah one could say that it makes an intellectual mistake about the most important thing. Not thinks that instead of Ribbono Shalom, that there is many gods. However, Rav Hirsch says the essential problem is ethical, where we have a conception of Ribbono Shalom, who's a source of morality, who exemplifies morality, who rewards people for doing the right thing. The pagan view more is the divinities or forces that are powers that are out there, that the human being who knows how to manipulate them and control them will achieve that power. If you line up the stones correctly and dance in their proper steps, you're guaranteed rain. Right? Our idea of tefillah is not that one can control God, but one can beseech God. So for Rav Hirsch, paganism and idolatry becomes an excessive focus on power and control. This understanding of Avodah is also manifest in Rav Hirsch's commentary in Vayikra. And he explains an unusual drasha in Chazal about Molech. Molech, which there's a whole debate if one is actually sacrificing one's children and only walking them alongside fire. Uh, Rav Hirsch assumes that one's actually sacrificing the children. And then he comments on a drasha in the Gemara. There's a drasha that says that the prohibition of Molech is only when the parent gives over some of the children where if one gives over all the children, well, this would not be the Moloch crime that is a chi of Misa. And this certainly seems counterintuitive. One would normally imagine that killing all the children this way would be worse than some of the children. And indeed, it's no accident that this drasha appears in the Maral's Ber Hagola as one of the halachic drasha for which Chazal received criticism, that it's illogical and counterintuitive and irrational, and the Maral has his defense. Rav Hirsch gives a defense which is particular to his theory of Odazara. Rav Hirsch says the whole idea of Molech is you appease the cosmic forces by giving up some children, and this allows your remaining children to flourish. Right Again, it's this attempt to control the universe, to achieve this kind of power, and if one gives up all one's children, then one's really just giving up everything. One's not trying to achieve power. And from this perspective, it is not irrational at all. There's truly a sense in which giving over some of the children is worse from this perspective of the attempt to achieve success and power for the remnant. Where first argues that dynamic changes if one gives up all the children. In this context, Rav Hirsch also points out that this kind of thinking could penetrate into the, our religious community as well. This is again Rav Hirsch in Be'ekra Perak Yudchet. And he says, I'm going to quote from the Hebrew translation of his German, this belief in Molech about the decree of fate, could also spread among those who claim to be believers in God. And also uh, outlooks that are widespread and are they prove this. But those, that kind of belief testifies to one of two things. Either it takes the control away from our compassionate God. 
Or it converts that one god to a pagan god. I mean, either one has to make room for other forces. Or one corrupts the conception of God. God is no longer this supreme moral being who responds in a moral way, but a more capricious uh, cosmic force. And indeed, uh, certainly Hashkafot, even in our day, uh, Hashkafot that would view arguably certain kinds of uh, magical uh, amulets to save things or to protect us, where the sense that we could somehow uh, get the right kind of uh, magical symbol, and this uh, makes God help us, where really religious life is about the search for Torah mitzvot, about becoming better people, not about searching for a skula or some kind of magic protection. Right? Uh, imagine if someone chooses to spend uh, hours, instead of learning or doing chesed, searching for the, for the perfect red string to protect them. For a first, this would have the, the whiff of paganism about it, where there's a, instead of God as a moral being who one's trying to uh, emulate, it becomes a force that one's trying to manipulate. So this is Rav Hirsch in terms of Moloch, and again reflects his uh, position on Nevodah It's interesting that Rav Hirsch is nervous that aspects of our Avodah Hashem shouldn't turn into this. This emerges also in his view of the Shemona Yemei HaMiluim. In Vayikra Perik Tet, Pasuk Chav Gimel, we have the completion of the eight days of Miluim, then it says, They enter the Olam Moed. And it's not clear what they enter for. And some Mepharshim say they enter to Davin, because they were waiting. They thought after the last Karban, after the last offering from the eight days is finished, there'd be an immediate Hidgalut, an immediate divine revelation. When it doesn't happen, they need to Davin. And it's quite interesting. If one looks at Mepharshim, one has a sense of tension lingering from Chet Ego that Aaron in particular and Am Yisrael has, as a whole both have a sense that maybe they won't merit the divine presence again after they've committed the grievous transgression of Chet HaEgel. And it's also striking according to that that Moshe does the Avoda for the first seven days of Miluim. Aaron does it on the eighth day and then there's Hitkalut. There's a real sense that Aaron has been forgiven. Aaron is able to move on to new uh, spiritual achievements. However, first takes it differently. Rav Hirsch there understands that there can't be a revelation right after the Karban. Because if there's a revelation right after the Karban, one will again start to think in pagan terms. One will start to think of the sacrificial order as a magical practice that forces the divine forces to do your bidding. And the delay is crucial. The delay, again, is the sense of, well, it's not magic. We're not in control. We can do mitzvot and we can hope to influence Hashem to respond to us. But we're not in control of Him. It is not a power that we have. And that's the delay for Avrash again, trying to avoid lapsing into this pagan conception. Uh, one last angle on this, though it's not exactly the same point, Avrash explains in Perak Tedzayin of Sefer Yikra, he raises the famous question that Perak Tedzayin, which describes the avoda of the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur, doesn't mention in the first 28 psukim that it's Yom Kippur. Only in Pasuk Chavtet will one find out that we're talking about Yom Kippur. And this motivated a famous idea in the Gra, which appears in the Tziv as well, that perhaps Aaron HaKohen was able to enter any day of the year. Any day he, he d- engaged in this entire process, in this Avodah, he could go in. But Lidorot, it becomes restricted to Yom Kippur. Rav Hirsch actually gives a different answer. Rav Hirsch says that the reason why on, there's a breakup like this is as follows. In Pasuk Chavtet, we hear, Don't 
the first mention of Yom Kippur links it with two things, with Inu and Nefesh, with fasting and the other Inuim, and Komalachalotasu. Namely, for Rav, for Rav Hirsch, the Pasuk is emphasizing that the essential atonement of Yom Kippur does not depend upon the sacrificial order. The essential atonement of Yom Kippur depends on this, on Inu Nefesh and on Natu Mlacha. Now again, Rav Hirsch does not bring the fear of paganism in here, but one might suspect that again, lurking in the background is this fear that the sacrificial order is some kind of magical procedure to achieve the results we want. And says Rav Hirsch, no, there's first you hear about how Aaron enters the Kodesh Kodeshim, then, what's the essence of Yom Kippur? Inu nefesh and not doing melacha. Okay, so this is the first theme of Hirsch. Sefer Ve'ekra, of course, also outlines the various sources of Tumah. And here, also, Rav Hirsch has a very interesting approach to this problem. Rav Hirsch argues that Kashrut and Tumah Vitara are essentially arguing against the materialist conception of the universe. And materialism, not in the sense that wanting physical pleasures, but a, a philosophical materialism, arguing that all there is in the world is truly the physical. And everything else, the claims of the spirit, the claims of religion, the claims of ethics, are not really true, authentically so. They really just cover us for the material. That the human being is essentially a material being. There's certainly a conception that we've seen in uh, various uh, philosophies in the, and ideologies in the world. For Rav Hirsch, Kashrut and Tumar are against this. Kashrut, obviously, is the choice of the spirit, right? The ability to resist, despite the fact that this food might be delicious for me or might be nourishing for me. But if it's not kosher, I desist, right? Through the spirit conquering the material. For Rav Hirsch, Tumar Vitara is all about moments in life when you might start to have a materialist conception of the human being. And here, the classic Tumar perhaps illustrates this the best, right? The Tumar the uh, granddaddy of all tumas, as it were, is, of course, tumat mate, the tumma of a dead body. And this is a more chamer tumma, right? It's a viavot tumma, one that touches it becomes an avatumma. It's the, uh, one of the, either the only tumma or perhaps this plus mitzorah that can be transferred by ohel, right? This is a tumma of excessive severity. This is perhaps the, the paradigmatic tumma. And death, says Rav Hirsch, is something that could lead one to a materialist conception of, of humanity. Right, the body dies, physical body dies, and there doesn't seem to be a remnant. Maybe all there ever was was a physical body. There was no spirit. Of course, this is not what we believe, says Rav Hirsch. But death could bring about that kind of thought. Therefore, Tumah Vitara is our declaration of our ethical freedom, of our life of the spirit. Right. So the process of becoming to me and striving to come to us says that, no, we're not, we're not just dependent on the world of the material. We, we control our own destiny. We can make spiritual gestures that show that we're not dependent just on the physical. Uh, Rav Hirsch would like to argue that other tumors also stem from the same source. And he argues that the real reason why there's tumat nevela, that a dead animal causes tumor, is precisely because of the similarity between the animal body and the human body. That tumor is really about, again, viewing the human being as pure matter, as pure, pure corporeality, but those animals that might create a similar, whose death might create a similar sense to human being, they create the same tumah. Rafersh even tries to argue that the specific shmona shratzim. So Rafersh argues that these shratzim, in some ways, have a skeleton that resembles the human being. This might be more, a bit more of a stretch, but nonetheless, this reflects his conception that it's essentially the sense of uh, the lapse into the material, viewing the human being as just a material being that is the source of Tumah. Of course, other Tumahs can be explained this way as well. 
right, this becomes a new possibility for Tumat Yoledet, right? right? Why should giving birth, something we view as uh, a uh, tremendously positive act in our thought, why should this be a source of Tumat and also demand the carbon Chatat? Well, again, birth is a very powerful physical force. It's a, almost like a physical force that overtakes the woman. One might think... In the same way, the various tumot associated with sexuality can also be explained. Again, the act of uh, human relations can also be a very powerful physical force that gives one a sense of the human being as just the product of material forces. So here we see a running theme through Tumah. We have things like birth and sexuality and death, things that are very concrete and say, very strong sense of the, the physical, which create Tumah. So we have a running theme that might explain a good deal of Tumot. This also ex- relates to Rav Hirsch is polemic not to view Tumah as some kind of sickness. And this is particularly manifest in Tumat Nagam, where Rav Hirsch in Perik Yud Gimel, argues against what he calls the sanatorial understanding of Tumat Negarim, at which point uh, Nega Tzarat would be some kind of sickness, and the reason why the Mitzorah would leave the camp would be a kind of medical quarantine, so that this Mitzorah should not infa- infect others. And this is something that uh, many have argued against. One classic argument against it is the case of Nigei Batim, where we have the owner of the house remove all the kelim before the Kohen declares it to be Tameh, and this saves those kelim from possibly creating a great economic loss. Perhaps certain kelim that cannot become Tahar again, which will become Tameh, and the owner will not be able to compensate financially for them. Uh, of course, if this was an illness issue and an infection issue, this would make no sense, right? If the bayit had sarat, and the kelim inside that bayit might have been affected, so taking them out before the Kohen makes his declaration becomes a meaningless game. If, however, this is a halachic status and some kind of symbolic idea, rather than a medical quarantine, this makes sense. And Rafersh argues that various halachot in Chazal point in this direction. First of all, Chazal say that the Kohanim would not look at Nagam about during the regal time, right? presumably because we wanted Jews to be tahor at the regal. They wanted to partake of the avodah and the festivities around the Mikdash on the Regalim. Again, if it's an issue of illness, it makes no sense, right? Why have people who might be carrying an infectious disease present with the multitudes, right? This would be a very silly endeavor. I guess this again indicates it's not an issue of illness. Refresh also adds the fact that certain sveiko negamar tahar, where if it would be an issue of health, we should say sveiko asur. Refresh also wonders... If it was a sick, if it was an issue of infection, why is this the only illness that is treated so? There are plenty of illnesses that maybe halacha should have worried about. The fact that it doesn't apply to non-Jews, a non-Jewish home that gets a nega would not have this halacha. And the kohanim in general, the kohanim do not seem to be medical personnel. That doesn't seem to be who they are in general, and it doesn't seem to be how they function in the particular case of nigaim. Reverse also makes an argument based on the context of the mention nigaim in dvarim, that in sefer dvarim when it comes to remembering the story of Miriam, in Dvarim Chav Dalad, uh, it says, mm-hmm. So Rav Hirsch points out that the whole context there is a context of various social and interpersonal laws, but interpersonal duties. 
And if negatsara would just be an issue of illness, then it wouldn't really be it's more a pragmatic idea and it doesn't belong there. So if Hershey is polemic against what again what he calls the sanatorial position about Nagayim, it again reflects Rav Hershey's view of uh, Tumma in general. The Tumma certainly is not a physical health issue. Again, it's precisely the wrong point in Tumma. Tumma is that the human being is much more than the physical. And therefore, if Hirsch in particular, even more than other commentaries, will be upset and stridently against any view that, resu- that tries to reduce Tumma or Nigaim or Mitzorah to an issue of health. So we've seen two themes in our first so far. We've seen his fight with Avodah and viewing Avodah as about the search for control and power, and Rav Hirsch's view of Tumma as an argument against the material conception of the human being. I'd like to explore a little some of Rav Hirsch's theories in terms of Karbanot. And here, Rav Hirsch has a very interesting argument in Perek Dalet, where Rav Hirsch argues that the paradigmatic karban, or perhaps the defining karban in the Beit HaMikdash, is a karban ola. And here are first some interesting arguments for it. First of all, it's the karban tamid. Right? There's a karban that's going to come every morning and every afternoon, that is somehow going to be the base karban of the entire avodah. This is an ola. Right? The karban tamid could have been a chatad, it could have been a shlamim. Yet the karban ola is picked. And indeed, the name of the mizbech, right? the outer mizbech, is referred to as the mizbech ola. Now, this is certainly not because Ola is the only carbon sacrificed upon it. Indeed not. Other carbonate are also sacrificed upon it. Yet it's called the Mizbach Ola. Again, indicating Ola is somehow defining carbon. Ola also could come as a Nidava more than other carbonate. Right? Ola could be both a Nidava Yachid and a Nidvat Sibur. It's the only carbon that has these properties. Again, this suggests that somehow an Ola is the carbon. That's why it's not only going to come in an obligatory fashion, but even in a voluntar- voluntary fashion. Refers also mentioned there's certain halacha where a karban was meant to be one thing and it didn't work out exactly in a kind of the fallback position is a karban ola, without getting into the details here. So Refers has the karban ola as the defining karban. Now here Refers argues that it's important that the chatat not be the defining karban. Because would the, fi- the chatat be the defining karban, this would lead a sense that the essential religious posture is of a corrupt and sinful human being. Right, that's our essential posture, which again, certainly in some religions, that could be the essential posture. And one could certainly argue that Rav Hirsch is polemicizing against Christianity here, although he does mention uh, against a certain self-mortification of the pagans as well. Rav says it's not our posture. It's not that we have a Pollyannish conception of human being. It's not that we think the human being isn't often seriously flawed. At the same time, this is not something that is inherent and unavoidable. That the human being is just sinful by definition, and would then need to be saved despite his or her sinfulness. But rather, that's not the case, and therefore it's important that a chatas not be the defining karban, but it be the ola. Now, I, one must admit here that this idea might depend a bit on what one says about the ola. Um, it's clear that the ola is a little bit, has a little bit of a tension in terms of its relationship to chet. On the one hand, an ola is not like a chatat. Right? A chatat you only bring when you know there's a specific chet that you committed b'shogeg. Right, you're not, you can never, both the Tziachid and the Tzibor can never bring a Chathas as a Nidava. You can't just decide that you're in a sinful state and bring a Chathat. Conversely, the Shlamim is clearly not related to Chet at all. Right? There's no imagery of Kapara for the Shlamim, quite the contrary. However, the Ola does have the phrase of an Yitzalo Lechapera love. Yet, Ola is not a case where I specifically sinned, sinned in a specific way and then bring a Karban. So, Ola seems to be somewhat in between. And there are various suggestions in the Mefrashim what is the relationship between Ola and Kapara. One suggested as an Ola is Mechaper for Bitul Aseh. 
When it fails to fulfill an assay, Ola brings kapar. But again, it's not that if I didn't put on tefillin one day, I would then immediately bring a karban Ola. No, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. But when I bring an Ola, then it would be a kapar for various missed opportunities, various bitul assay. There's another suggestion that an Ola is a kapara for improper thoughts. Right, this would relate. The best proof of this would be the pasuk in Eov when Eov says, "I will bring an Ola for my sons." Right, maybe they somehow sinned in an internal way, and therefore there's a need for there's a need for kapara. So again, if one emphasizes these themes, so then Rafish's idea would not work. The Ola would be very hate related. But again, as we pointed out, the Ola is a complicated karban, not hate related in the way a chatat is. And therefore, if one downplays the chet element and views Ola as what the Gemara calls essentially a daron, a gift, a free gift, then Rafushi's idea certainly works. The chatat is not defining karman, but the Ola is, because our essential view of the human being and of religious life is not just sinful man. That's a component, but certainly not the be-all and end-all. Rav Hirsch also has a fascinating perspective on another famous question. Uh, it's been noted by several that a karban asham seems to be more expensive than a karban chatat. And if one talk, talks about asham taluy, this again seems to be counterintuitive. After all, a chatat is a case when I'm sure that I have sinned. Right? I'm sure that I've sinned b'shogeg and I bring a karban chatat. An asham taluy, not the other kinds of asham, asham taluy is a case where I'm not sure if I've sinned. So presumably if I'm not sure if I'm sinned, I'm better off than if I'm sure I've sinned. So this is a famous question. Already the Ramban and Rabbi Yonah suggest that's precisely the point. Someone who's sure they sinned knows they did the wrong thing and knows there's a need for a process of kapara. It doesn't need to be emphasized by the economics of the karban. Whereas with the karban asham, one has a sense of what I'm not even sure if I sinned, so it's not really such a big deal. There isn't really an authentic introspection and desire for kapara. Therefore, halacha comes and creates a uh, uh, stronger, a more demanding economic spending on this karban to illustrate this point. So this is a famous approach. Rav Hirsch actually has a different approach. Rav Hirsch says something fascinating. He says, Ein ha-mikdash pesha adishut. The mikdash is not afraid of negligence or iniquity. It's afraid of indifference. And here Rav Hirsch says something very interesting. The issue with Asham is that it's a lack of awareness. A person who sins b'shogeg, but they become aware that they've sinned, meaning they know what's a sin in life, and they might make a mistake, but the sin it's immediately clear that they've sinned. When, let's say one has a tray piece of meat on the table and inadvertently eats it, but one was aware very clearly that there was a tray piece of meat. Karban Asham indicates that one wasn't even careful about whether it was tray or kosher. Right, it wasn't so much negligence; it was more indifference to the entire endeavor. And Rav Hirsch would like to argue that this indifference could be more destructive ultimately than a sin. It's almost if someone sins, one is taking cognizance of religious duties. One can rebel against them, one can adhere to them, one cannot be one can be negligent about them. But but the, the duties are part of one's mental universe. Where if one is not even unsure about what is a problem or not, one's not even willing to pay attention. It's a kind of indifference. There's, I think, a sharp psychological point here that really could have a lot of relevance to us. That, uh, again, there are different groups and different people who struggle with certain religious uh, duties, and sometimes there's this almost a desire to rebel against them or competing ideologies. But in a certain sense, at least those kind of people, they're, they're recognizing the need for an ideology. Right? They might struggle with their ideology in the Torah, but they're in the world of thinking about ideas and ideals. Whereas there's a perspective of just grand indifference to the whole endeavor. Right? That's not where life's to be found. And even though sometimes the indifference doesn't express itself as negatively 
as other kinds of problematic behavior. But it, the indifference, in some ways, is even more destructive. So here again, our first is very interesting about the Asham. I'd like to mention one last innovation of our first in the world of Karbano, and then we'll sum up the whole thing. In Perak Yutet, the famous Perak that begins with Kedoshim Tiyu. And it's well known that Kedoshim Tiyu might be a source for a certain kind of asceticism, a certain kind of restrictions in the world of physical indulgence. Rashi, of course, says Kedoshim Tiyu is specifically about the world of Arayot, in the world of sexuality. Famously, the Ramban says it's a much broader point, and it's fighting against Naval Bershut Torah that one could spend all one's days eating kosher meat and drinking kosher wine and a couple having relations, and this would not be a problem. It's, it's, it's a married couple, and the wine is, is kosher, and the meat is glad kosher. But, of course, this is not uh, what religious existence is all about. And Ramban famously calls this a naval b'shutotara, someone who's a disgusting person, according to the Torah's permission. And Kedoshim Tiyu is coming to restrict that. Now, again... One could debate to what degree this is true in the Ramban, but in theory, one could view this as kind of a demand to minimize on physicality. Now, a few pesukim later in Parak Yutet and Pasuk Hey, it talks about the Shlamim. For first, says the Shlamim is there for a very important reason, which is Shlamim is the greatest symbol of the ability to sanctify the physical. Right here, Shlamim is a carbon from which the Balam eat, and yet this is something that's viewed as a carbon of great significance. Meaning, one might have thought that the, the greatest kind of offering, or the only kind of offering that's really worth something, is a carbon which is not partaken of by anybody or not by the balim for sure, such as nola or chatat. The existence of a shlamim there, says Rav Hirsch, is to show the following. On the one hand, we certainly don't want to be overwhelmed with sensuality. En liot shatuf bechushim, says Rav Hirsch. The gam en hamit abasar. But nor are we a religion that's interested in destroying the flesh but rather in sanctifying the flesh. And here I think we see some important themes in reverse that don't receive as much, uh, as much notice as some of the other themes you mentioned. The view of Vodazara as a striving for power, the view of Tuma as an argument against the materialist conception of the human being, the Ola as the primary Kaban and not the Chatat because the human being is not inherently sinful, the Asham reflecting the problem of indifference, and the Shlomim reflecting the ability to sanctify the physical as the balance to Kedoshim to you. I've uh, very much enjoyed uh, learning the Machshav of the Chonim with my listeners, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to return to this at another time.